Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who just five years into my legal career found myself teetering on the edge of burnout. So that I didn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided it was time to redefine success from the inside out. Fast forward a few years and it worked. I had a thriving legal career balanced with a fulfilling life. What I learned is that you can achieve the success you want without sacrificing yourself in the process. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Life in Law podcast. Today, we have a guest. And as has happened with a lot of my guests recently, I met him on LinkedIn. So a shout out to all of you who I'm connected to on LinkedIn. You never know, you might just become a guest on the podcast. Today's guest is Gary Miles. He has been practicing law for more than four decades, primarily in litigation and more recently in family law. He's been a managing partner, author, leader, and entrepreneur, and is passionate about showing people how to free themselves from the prisons that entrap them, which is what really intrigued me and got me um, interested in getting him on this podcast. Through his own podcast called The Free Lawyer and Coaching, he provides practical tools to help attorneys free themselves from stress and overwhelm so they can enjoy the success and fulfillment they have always craved. Gary lives in Pinehurst, North Carolina with his wife, Brenda, and his two beautiful English Goldens, and loves spending time with his five children and five, so far, grandchildren. Welcome, Gary. Hey, thank you, Heather. I really, really appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so excited. And, you know, I think I told you originally, we're just going to have a conversation today because you have such a rich story, and I think your story will really help a lot of attorneys out there with dealing with the stresses of being a lawyer and some of the other issues that some of us tend to fall prey to, which we'll get into (laughs) as we go along. But why don't we get started kind of where it all started? You know, what made you want to become a lawyer in the first place? Well, I, uh, my older brother is nine years my senior, and I've always sort of followed in his footsteps. We're very close. We both like sports. We both did great in school. Um, He went to loyal University in Baltimore, so did I. We went to the same high school and he went to University of Maryland Law School. And I just knew that was what I was going to do too. It, it fit with my skill set of being fairly intelligent, being logical. And, um, and once I became a lawyer, our paths diverged because he was a plaintiff's attorney. I was a defense attorney, but <laughs> I, I sort of knew all along is what I wanted to do. Interesting. So you knew all along partly because you followed in his footsteps, but also because you had the skills and you were interested in it as well? Or did you kind of feel like you fell into it and it ended up being the right thing? No, I think it's what I wanted all along. I, I um, Particularly litigation, I, I enjoy the being, being on my feet, thinking on my feet, arguing logically with people. It's sort of a personality trait. It works okay in the courtroom. It doesn't work okay <laughs> in relationships. Um, but I've just always wanted to do that. And and I, I not only knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but I wanted to do litigation was my primary focus from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. I laugh when you say it works great in the courtroom, but not so well in relationships. And right. I think most attorneys know this. <laughs> I've learned that my wife, Brenda, always, I think I'm being nice and supportive and understanding when she comes home from work and I ask her this question, that question. She says, I want to be interrogated. So I mm-hmm. have to learn to leave my questioning style, you know, at work. 
Have you ever, this is kind of off topic, but this is something that I was accused of early on in my relationship with my husband. And he's like, do you have an opinion here? Like, how is it you're arguing both sides? Because I can argue any side of any argument, even though I have very specific opinions of my own. Um, Ask me to argue the other side, and it's pretty easy for me to do. (laughs) Well, I don't get that. But when I ask questions, people think I'm expressing an opinion. And maybe I'm asking questions like a defense lawyer would to move someone in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But I start asking questions. It's like, why do you think that? And and I always respond, well, I haven't said what I think yet. I'm just asking questions. So I really do need to leave that at, at work and practice my listening skills at home, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to do at home, I think, to carry it over. So, okay. So you've started practice. Give us a sense of what you did early on in your career and how that kind of progressed. Sure. I I was blessed to graduate number one in my law school class, and then I clerked in federal court. So I could have really worked anywhere. Every one of the other law clerks went into big law. I clerked for a small firm in Baltimore, um, actually starting right before law school. And I felt a sense of appreciation and gratitude and commitment. And I returned there. Um, after a very brief time, I realized it wasn't the place that was for me because I wanted to be a litigator. They were a general commercial firm, but they were not folks who tried cases in court. So I was sort of a boutique defense litigation firm. I got amazing experience. I mean, I was trying jury cases in my first year and, and loved it and, and worked with a man who was the preeminent civil defense attorney in Baltimore at the time, who I really adored because maybe different from how the practice has evolved, he was so professionally courteous with his opponents um, and they were with him. That was sort of the mindset back then that it's a little different now when we might take advantage of the opponent's mistake instead of sort of working through it. And he really taught me how to be in front of a jury and be casual and comfortable and be true to myself. So I oh, really I love that. that. I think that's interesting. Do you think there are still those type of lawyers out there litigating or do you think there's not, or at least not very many any, any longer? There really aren't very many. And, and, and the story I'll tell as an example of what it was like then, there was a lawyer named George White. My, my mentor was Dick Lurch. They were the best plaintiff's attorney and the best defense attorney, or one of them, in the state of Maryland. They try, they seem to always draw each other and try cases against each other. And George was trying this case. I was second chair and he had forgotten to subpoena the hospital bill and didn't have it even as an exhibit. And he said, darn it, Dick, I forget to subpoena the hospital bill. And Dick said, well, what do you think it is? He said, I don't know, about 10 grand. He said, that's fine. I'll stipulate to it. Now, I mean, can you imagine today that happening? (laughs) But they knew that they would have enough cases back and forth that there was a hospital bill. It it was probably more than that amount. It was true. And they weren't going to make an issue of something because what goes around comes around. And it seems like one of the major stresses I think lawyers face now is dealing with lawyers who practice gotcha. Oh, I gotcha now, Heather. You you made a mistake there on that document and and use it against the person said, hey, Heather, I think you made a mistake. Let's see if we can get this rectified. Yeah, it's interesting you said that. That was going to be my, my next question. And and a comment I would have to that is when I was in law school, I initially thought I was going to be a litigator. And by the time I started clerking, I realized, no, this is not for me because personality-wise, it really was not a good fit. It was too adversarial in that sense. 
the adversarial part of going to court, arguing your side, having a different, you know, side and opinion and arguments is not what bothered me about it. It was the, what I saw as gamesmanship to yes. one up each other constantly. And it just felt sleazy to me, to be honest with you. <laughs> yes. And I realized, you know, that is going to stress me out so much that I, I wouldn't be successful ultimately at it. Even if I was successful in the courtroom, it would bring me down and it would be bad for my health. And so I chose not to do that. I do think that there is a space for that. And it would be really nice if people would get back to that because, A, I think it would really help how people view lawyers, number one. The reason, the biggest reason I think we have a bad name in some people's minds is that. And then secondly, I think it would help with a lot of the stress and overwhelm that a lot of attorneys feel. That's unquestionably, unquestionably true. I transitioned into family law about 15 years ago. And, and I love that area of practice. I love helping people when they're going through one of the most difficult times in their life. The only thing I really don't like about it is the 20 to 25% of lawyers who churn the file, create arguments, want to fight, want to call people names. And it doesn't have to be that way because there are some lawyers in Baltimore County where I practice who we're on opposite sides of the case. And Gary, what, how can we find a solution to make this work for our clients? Well, Heather, what does your client want? What are some solutions that might work? And we get together and we figure out solutions in, in a collaborative way, understanding we each have clients with their own needs and so forth, but we don't need to throw stones and call people names and take advantage to get that result for our clients. So it doesn't have to be that way, but right. it has become more and more that way, sadly, over time. Yeah. And I would say as a child of divorce, especially if you have children involved, I think people need to like grow up a little bit and realize that, yes, your client has their side and their own needs, but you also have a continuing relationship with these people oftentimes. And even if you don't, even if there aren't children involved, you had a relationship for a reason. Try to preserve some of that respect and dignity for yourself in that relationship. <laughs> and Absolutely. I think- Having lawyers that understand that and, and, and can advocate for their clients to the best of their ability, but yet keep that in mind are giving them the best representation possible. It, absolutely. It's all about solving our clients' problems. The faster, the easier, the less expensively we can in whatever arena, whether it's commercial law. Um, we're, we're paid professional problem solvers. We're not fighters. We're not people who should be turning a file, calling people names. None of those things are helpful. And really cause a lot of stress for lawyers today, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I saw that as a transactional lawyer, too. I think, you know, 80% of the time, I felt like, or maybe it was 75%, we were all on the same page as far as where we were trying to go. We just had different ideas. And, and so I was a finance attorney. And most of the time, I represented the lender. And the lender had certain things that they needed to pay attention to to ensure their money was safe. And yet, the borrower had a way of doing business. And so... Ultimately, the lender wanted the borrower to do the business the best way possible for the business. But sometimes the way they always did it wasn't the way that everything was structured, right? And so we would have to find a common ground, and we tried to. And most of the time, both sides would understand this and wanted to work towards, you know, what's best for everybody involved. 
every once in a while, was that 20 to 25% where we would get those highly, I, I felt like they needed to be litigators. That's who, who I looked at them as. I was like, why are you not a litigator? Because you act like one. And it was so difficult and it made things so much more difficult, like overwhelming for everybody, stressful for everybody, and frankly, incredibly expensive, <laughs> which was not in the best interest of their client because their client was the borrower and the borrower was paying everything. <laughs> so. right. And and the stress that created for you having to deal with someone like that when it was it was unnecessary it wasn't productive in any way no no it was unnecessary and I do fear that a lot more lawyers are going that route uh, they see more and more of it and I think that's a societal issue right now too we see it in our politics we see you know it, it's like you got to win at all costs I'm like that's not actually winning guys <laughs> we right. don't they don't seem to understand that yeah I couldn't agree more. So, okay, so you were practicing, you found your practice that you, for the most part, enjoyed. Tell us a little bit more about your career progression. Sure. So it's always been a small firm. We've had, I was solo for a period of time. Later in my career, we started off with four attorneys. Um, and so I had a lot of, I ran the firm for 30 years. We had a foreclosure oh, wow. practice for a period of time. To me, that's not really practicing law as such. It's very different, <laughs> more like a business Mm -hmm. We had about 45 employees in that, but I kind of got out of that because it wasn't my cup of tea. Um, and, and so I've been blessed. I know you came from big law um, mm -hmm. in that I had a lot of independence, a lot of autonomy. I got to choose who I worked with, but I also had the stress of meeting bills um, all the time. And and so it had its own world of of stresses, but I really, really enjoyed it. And And I've not had the hourly requirement to deal with. I worked as much as I wanted to work. My associates have always had that kind of mentality. We're here to make money. We're here to do service. But it really, I really, really enjoyed the practice of law and, and where it took me. And so you were managing partner for a lengthy period of time and you were practicing. And even though you enjoyed it, and even though there was a lot of pluses, obviously there were stresses. You've mentioned yes. them. How did you handle all of that? Well, as, as some people know, because I've shared on my podcast, I've struggled with alcoholism. I practiced for 11 years as an active alcoholic. I don't know, but I don't believe that law caused me to be an alcoholic. My own personal belief, I'm not an expert, is it's something I was born with. Mm -hmm. It's genetic. My dad uh, got, got sober in recovery, and we have others in our extended family. So that for me was a real difficult time. Um, I didn't handle those stresses very well. Litigation is often a win or lose kind of thing unless you settle the case. And, and I, the weird thing was when I struggled with that, the crazy irrational fear that I felt, fear of things that weren't scary. But particularly in litigation, I became so obsessed about winning and losing that it created such worry and stress for me. It was very, very difficult. Um, when I got sober, my whole perspective transformed. Mm -hmm. I didn't really, it's not that I didn't care about winning or losing, but I didn't focus on it. I care less about it than I did before. I preferred to win than lose, but it, it wasn't the end of the world either way. It wasn't the top. I tried to stay off the top of the mountain because when I think I'm all that, that's not a good place for me. And I tried to stay out of the dark, dark jungle in the valley because that's not a good place for me. So I really live by this too shall pass. Like if things are really great, man, they're not always be great. If things are really terrible, they're not always <laughs> going to be terrible. It's just, a, it's a journey. It's a journey. Right. I try to stay present in the moment has, has been my goal to enjoy each day. 
Um, you know, I used to spend so much time thinking about this case is worry when this case is done three months from now, I can't wait till it's over. And I realize every day is a gift and I try to live every day fully being present and being mindful. Okay. So there's a lot of questions I have from that answer, but first I want to hone in on something that I find interesting. So you said when you, when you were an alcoholic or, you know, actively drinking, you were very focused. Your mindset was very different, focusing on the wins and the losses and the fears that were ever present. But then when you quit, it's like you were able to change out of that. And not that you didn't want to win, but the, the hyper-focused, like, I have to win wasn't there, which is interesting to me because I've, I've shared before that my mom is a recovering alcoholic. And I grew up with her being an alcoholic my entire life until I was an adult. I was in law school when she quit. And it's not that her entire personality changed, but there was a lot of change that I saw in her and how she approached life and how she saw it and reacted to things from an emotional standpoint when she was no longer drinking. And I think that most of us don't realize when we are caught up in it, how much it changes how we see things. <laughs> and then after the fact, it's like you were able to remove yourself and look at it a very, very differently. Yes? Yes. Yes. Is it that, because I teach my clients or try to teach my clients to stop hyper-focusing on the outcome. I think that's something that we high achievers in general and lawyers definitively do. We want to win. We want to compete. The whole point of competing is to win, right? And so we focus on the outcome, which we can't completely control. And so what I try to teach them is you need to start focusing on your input. What is the input? Are you doing the best to, of your ability, given your circumstances, given what you know, get, you know, given your values, are you doing it in a way that aligns with how you want to show up, right? And if you focus on that, you're going to get the best result possible. But you may not always win because you can't control all of that. I, I could not agree more. I, I believe the same thing and I coach the same thing. Well, we think so much about the outcome. And usually what we're thinking about is what's going to happen when I lose. That's usually mm -hmm. where we go. And, and for me, really, it's very important for me to get rid of expectations as well, because I've always had expectations of winning. And, and I won a lot more cases than I lost, but I'd win a case and I'd take it for granted. I didn't, I didn't savor it. It was like, okay, well, I expected that. Um, and when I lost a case, I was, I was shattered. Mm. And if you think of, I'm a, I'm a Ravens fan. If you think of my Ravens playing the worst team in pro football and favored by two touchdowns when they win, it's like, well, of course I expected that. But when they lose, we're crushed. How could we lose to that terrible team? And that's, that was my life as a lawyer. I expected perfection. And when I didn't get it, I was crushed. And when I did, I didn't savor it. So I wasn't really ever happy because I didn't savor the wins. And I let the, the defeats hold me back. So I find focusing on the process of being a lawyer, whatever, whatever it is, as a litigator, get our opening statement ready, get our witnesses lined up, prepare our questioning, and we're good to go. And do our opening and however it is, it is. And whatever the jury's going to do, the jury's going to do. Um, and focusing on the process, like you say, the word input. Take care of what we have to do today because all those other thoughts just hold us back. Yeah. They stop us from being as successful as we want to be. They don't serve us in any way. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of my clients, they talk about, but what if, what if, what if, what if I lose? What if this doesn't work out? What if? And I'm like, okay, what if? You deal with it as it comes. Like, you're a smart person. You know this. You can figure it out. And it's like this epiphany, like, oh, yeah, you're right. 
That's true. <laughs> they the don't think in is, those terms. The other thing I think is sometimes our failures are where we grow and learn the most. If I have oh, yeah. a day when everything is going perfectly, it's an easy day, but I haven't grown. I haven't learned. But when something doesn't work out right, if I say something I shouldn't say, or I try something a certain way and it, it doesn't work, or if I even try a good case and I lose, I still learn something from that. So, you know, failures are really a great opportunity for growth. It might be personal growth where I'm learning patience, acceptance, and tolerance, or it might be legal growth where I learn how to handle the next matter better than I did the last one. So failures are not something to be uh, upset about. They don't make us a failure. They're just an opportunity to learn and grow in my perspective. I totally agree. And in fact, probably the most popular post I've ever put out on social media to date, I posted about, I think it was last week at the time of this recording. And it's about how scared I was when I left the law, the the voice inside my head that was like telling me you might fail at this. You might. And in all honesty, I did fail initially because I didn't think I was going to work with lawyers and I went a completely different direction. And it was like a crash and burn for me. Within two years, it became very obvious. I'm on the wrong path. This is not who I want to work with. I can't be successful at this because I'm not speaking to people that I really want to work to with, you know, and I pivoted and now, you know, things have really turned around. I've become more successful, all of that. And I look back and I'm like, you know, at the time it felt like a failure, but it was something I needed to go through and learn to be able to get to where I am now. And so it really wasn't a failure. I I don't see failure the way most people do. I see it as just, it's a lesson to be learned. And if you choose to learn from it, which you can learn from anything, it's not actually a, a real failure. It might be what you see as a short-term failure, but is what you need to learn along the path to your long-term success. And we often, I mean, we can't see into the future. We don't know how we're going to change as we go. And a lot has changed in my mindset and in what I want to do and who I want to help and how I want to help them since I first started my coaching business. I would never have seen myself here. It's certainly not a failure, <laughs> but I had to go through all those hard lessons to get here now. It's just on a different path. And I think that's something that's really hard for a lot of people in general, but especially lawyers who like to know with certainty what their future is. And you just can't. Right. Our, our journeys are very unpredictable. I, I bet 10 years ago, you would not have seen yourself here doing what no. you're doing now. No. No. And, you know, I'm, I don't think 10 years ago I would have either. I was planning on practicing law longer. I'm sort of downsizing from the active practice of law, but we relocated because of my wife's job. I tried to keep practicing in Maryland while she was in North Carolina. That wasn't where my heart was. <laughs> and, and I came here and, and, I was shown a new direction. So our paths are very unpredictable. And sometimes we have to kind of go with the flow and, and let what happens in life show us where we're supposed to be. It was not a failure when you chose that certain audience to coach. You just learned that's not where I'm supposed to be. And you found, yeah. you found your niche. You found where you're to serve others. And, and I love what you do to help lawyers. Um, I've listened to your podcast. You're amazing. And the no. service you provide is so important and so valuable to so many lawyers. And so I'm really glad you found you found your way to where you are now. And I thank you for that. And who knows where I'll be five years from now, right? I mean, I've kind of, like you, taken a very different outlook. And of course, the cancer journey that I was on has really helped me with this. But I would challenge everybody out there listening to find a way 
to do what you just said. Learn how to go with the flow a little bit more. Stop trying to plan everything out. Stop trying to know with certainty what's going to happen or where your path is leading you. You really don't. Regardless of how certain you think you feel, you don't know. And allow yourself to go with the flow. It actually can be a lot more fun than you realize. (laughs) Well, too often we're resisting certain things in our life. And it takes away all of our energy and all of our power to fight something when the reality is maybe we're supposed to just accept it and and move in that direction. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit again, if you're willing, and talk a little bit about your alcoholism while you were practicing. When you were in the midst of it, did you know or admit to yourself you had a problem? Well, it's a process. It's not an event. There were many, many times I would say to myself, why can't you stop drinking? I've been very successful at many things in my life and particularly things of the mind. I I just, Mm -hmm. everything fits. And I'm like, I'm a smart man. It's like, why can't you do this? And I don't know if in my mind, I, I said, you're an alcoholic, but I think at some point in time, I realized I really am. I really couldn't manage it. I I tried and tried and tried and I couldn't manage it. I couldn't control it. I would say I wasn't going to drink and I'd start drinking. I could say I was going to one or two and I'd have 10. Um, I had no power over it, but I had no vision of an ability to live life without drinking. So that was really where I was in a terribly dark place because I couldn't see my life going on drinking any longer and I couldn't see my life not drinking. I had no vision of that. I didn't seem... It didn't seem possible because honestly, many, many times I tried to stop and I just failed repeatedly. So before you got to that moment where you realized, okay, I need help with this, did you justify within your mind, well, I'm functioning, it's not really hurting my practice or me or my life or, you know, how, what was that like inner voice saying to keep you from asking for help and getting to that point where you could? Yeah, that was certainly my, my personal biggest um, stumbling block. Um, because I, I went to work every day. I literally never missed a day of work due to illness or my drinking. I missed a day of work due to golf sometimes, but never due to um, my drinking. Now, I was at work many, many times, hung over with the shakes, not productive, not able to focus, and not working even though I was sitting at my desk. But I was married. I'd never been arrested. I never went to jail. I never lost my job. It didn't really affect my practice in any a visible way. And so I could justify that it's not that big of a deal. And at times I mm. did that. Yeah. And I've seen this firsthand in other people that I've known, unfortunately. And I have a client now who has a parent who is it, it, what I've, what I've seen both through my mother, through friends and colleagues, and then this client with her father is it doesn't hurt you until it does. And you don't know when that's going to happen, but eventually it can catch up. It will catch up at some point. It always you just will. don't know when that will be. <laughs> it always will. So what was that moment where you were like, all right, got to get help? So the moment my, my dad got sober three years before me. So I saw his example of what it was like. I saw the changes in him, although he was always a kind and loving man, but I still saw some changes, particularly when we'd have our Sunday afternoon family parties. So I had that role model. But for me, I know it to be a blackout, but I didn't know what it was at the time. But we had a family party for my son. 
and and I had a conversation with my niece and goddaughter who was 15, which was very special, very intimate, very unique, very unusual mm-hmm. for a, a young girl that age. And the next morning, I remembered nothing of it, even though mm-hmm. I knew we spoke for a long time. And that scared me because I remember everything always. And the thought that I couldn't remember that, I didn't know what it was. I didn't fully understand it, but I knew it was bad and it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, it's it's when I made a choice to to look for some help. And how quickly after you stopped, did you start seeing the changes that you mentioned earlier, like noticing I'm approaching things differently. I see life differently. Like, is that a quick, I know it's a progression, right? But how quickly do you even notice that when you're going through it? Probably slow. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a slow process. You know, I, I was 37 when I got sober and that's 37 years of life where I've developed certain habits and certain characteristics, not all of which are necessarily alcoholic behaviors, but I was a perfectionist, a people pleaser, um, a controller, all those things, some of which weren't necessarily related to, to my drinking. Um, and it takes a long time to uncover all of that. Um, I, I, it's funny. I got some therapy a couple of years after I got sober and my therapist says, I love working with recovering alcoholics. You've already peeled the onion back. You understand yourself. <laughs> and it, it took a long time. I mean, it, it's not an overnight process. And no. in the beginning is very difficult and it can be difficult on families because the, the person in recovery changes and, and the rest of the folks don't know where that's coming from. You, you develop certain habits of dealing and living with an alcoholic that are not normal and not maybe even healthy because how else can you live with an alcoholic? You develop certain manners of responding. So when the alcoholic changes and becomes a completely different person, it changes everything in the world around them. And you think it would all be perfect. And, and it is certainly better, but yet it requires a lot of changes and adjustments. Yeah, I would say, you know, it was easier probably for me because I was already in law school about to start. My mom quit. I think it was towards the end of my second year. And we were no longer living together. We weren't together that often, right? Because we had different lives. Had I still been living with her, I think it would have been more difficult, even though we were very proud of her. We were very excited for her. Just because of that process. And my two cents is, you know, there's reason there's groups out there and therapy for people who are not the alcoholics themselves, but are family members. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, because it changes your life too. And yes, in many good ways. But again, as you said, it changes habits. It changes behaviors. It changes how you relate to people. And sometimes you need help with that as well. Yes. I mean, sometimes the alcoholic's like, just leave me alone and let me drink. Even if those words weren't said as such, right. that's the behavior. But when we get sober, we think, well, we got, you know, now we're entitled to be heard. We're entitled to an equal role. We're entitled to make decisions. Whereas before we, we didn't care as long as we were left alone. So mm-hmm. a lot of those things do change. So the answer is the process is a slow one and it's, it's really ongoing. I'm still growing and changing, you know, today after 30 odd years. Well, and I think that's the case for every one of us, whether we're alcoholics or not. We change constantly. And I kind of like to tell people, I mean, ultimately, addiction is something that I also believe is you're born with and you have that that within you. And not everybody 
you know, clicks for whatever reason, perhaps because they see it. I, I do think I've known some people who see it in their families because it does tend to be handed down. Well, so they yeah. change their behavior before it ever happens and ensure they don't ever go there. But, you know, ultimately it's a choice each individual has to make and there is a mindset piece that has to go with it or you can't do it. And just like with mindset in general, it's a choice you have to make every day. It's not something you like, it's one and done, right? You have to cultivate the mentality you need to stay sober every and work on that every single, every single day. day. Absolutely. And a lot of it has to do with being mindful and self-aware. So even for folks who don't struggle with addiction like I have, they need to examine their life. What are my values? What's important to me? And so often I've seen lawyers who are feel stuck and overwhelmed, but they've never really made a conscious choice about who do I want to be and where do I want to be and what do I want, what do I want to be doing and who do I want to be doing it with? So I think it's real important that all of us, and I know you've, you've gone through a whole lot. I've heard you share about your cancer and your recovery from that mm-hmm. and how that changed you and your mindset. You looked at the world very differently. Now that's a terrible thing you went through. But that was the gift that you received from it. You looked at life differently. Yes. And a lot of it comes from being mindful and aware of our thoughts and our values and our beliefs. Yeah, I learned to stop being scared of my own thinking and thoughts and feelings and realize that we humans spend an incredible amount of time trying to push away those uncomfortable, vulnerable thoughts and feelings that we all have. And that's a lot of energy that we spend and doing that actually gives them power over you, which creates more fear (laughs) and more bad feelings. And once you learn to face them head on and deal with them and let them just be and exist and then handle them differently, it's like that power gets very, not always 100% released, but a lot of it does. And that fear and the worries and the doubts and all that just diminishes drastically. And give that negative emotion a a name, Mm -hmm. afraid, I feel worried, I feel scared, whatever it is, and and give voice to it, even if it's an internal voice. Why am I feeling that way? What's it about? And then how much does it really matter? How can I handle it? Um, and, And sort of work through the emotions. But once we try to stuff them, again, it goes with going with the flow. If that's how we're feeling that day, that's how we're feeling, and that's okay. But resistance always makes things worse. Absolutely. It's so counterintuitive to so many people, but facing them, naming them, asking some questions around where is this coming from? What are my beliefs behind this? is incredibly empowering because then it gives you insight you didn't realize was you had. It's kind of all in your subconscious. It pulls it out. It allows you to really understand what's going on. And then it enables you to figure out, okay, well, what's my best next step to deal with this? That's really empowering. And a lot of people don't realize that because it's very counterintuitive. <laughs> it is. It is. So what would you say to somebody kind of in the stages where they're drinking more than they'd like? They haven't admitted to themselves that they're an alcoholic, but they have that voicing, why can't I stop? What's wrong with you? Why? Are, what would you tell you when you were back then? Well, I would I would say this to that person, but really anyone who's struggling with any sort of depression or anxiety or excessive fear, mm. know that you're not alone. Um, when I was stuck there, I felt I was the only one like me. And there's a world of people like me. There are many, many others. 
Um, and the same would be true with someone who's struggling with depression, stress, or overwhelm. There's always an answer. I, as I told you earlier, I couldn't imagine my life any longer drinking. I couldn't have a vision of it not drinking, but I know now there's an answer. I didn't know that then. Mm. But for the person out there, know that there's an answer. There is a solution. There's a world of people willing to help you. And all it really takes is willingness. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be whatever that person's world is like now. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be different. There are people who are willing to help if you're willing to accept, ask for and accept the help. Isn't that the key piece? The, the willingness to be fully vulnerable, check your ego, admit you need help. Oh, it, it's critical. Without that, it doesn't matter. I, I worked with the Maryland Lawyer Assistance Committee. I chaired it in my area for about 20 years, and we would probably have it in Texas as well, but we would help lawyers and ju judges who are struggling with addiction, substance abuse, depression. And I really liked that service. Uh, had some amazing miracles of transformation and recovery, but too many of those folks were so far gone in their disease that their spouse, their partner, the judge knew they needed help, but they're like, I don't need help. What's wrong with them? And they weren't willing to mm -hmm. ask for and accept help. And willingness really, really is the key. And I'm sure you've probably seen it in your coaching as well. Having yeah. a lawyer, there's so many lawyers who need help, but so few, few who are willing to be vulnerable enough. And it can be confidential and private to call you, Heather, and say, Boy, I've heard your podcast. I'm struggling. Can you help me? And then to be willing to accept the help that you offer. Sometimes I'm too busy. You know, I, I can't do what you ask because I'm too busy. And a client we coach who does isn't willing to ask for help and accept it is going to be the same place three, four years from now or worse. Right. They always are. So I, I hear a number of excuses. Um, and they are excuses, y'all. I, I hate to say it this way, but it's true. But I would say this. It does mean you're not ready yet. And you've got to get to the place where you're ready or it's not going to help you. And so I usually know within the first five minutes of conversation, here's the kind of phrases they'll say. Well, I'm, I'm really busy, so I'm just not sure. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to do the work. I hear that a lot. And I'm like, okay, then you're probably not. Um, and, and by the way, you decide when you're ready. So make the decision and call me. <laughs> um, I need the help. I really, it, here's where it really like bothers me because we lawyers all want to fix things for people. And it hurts to not be able to help when you know you can. And yet they'll give this vision of what they want, which is an exciting, motivating vision. And they say they want it more than anything. But five minutes later, well, I'm just not sure. I'm so busy. I don't know that I have the time. And I'm like, dude, seriously? <laughs> um, and I call them out on it. And sometimes it jolts them into, you know, you're right. Never do they immediately accept, right? But they'll come back a month or two or three later and say, okay, I'm ready. I have people come back to me a year or more later. And I will say, without a doubt, every time that happens, they say, I wish I would have hired you then. And my response is, no, you don't, because you weren't ready and it would not have helped you. And I probably wouldn't have taken you on. I would say the worst, and this is where the ego comes into play. We lawyers are very egotistical, unfortunately. It's yeah. just true. And we all have egos, y'all. That's not always a bad thing. But it's bad when it holds you back from doing the things you most want to be doing. One person actually told me, can I hire you without telling my spouse? They didn't even want their spouse to know because I don't want to admit I'm getting help. And I'm like, oh, 
No. <laughs> no, that's a huge red flag. <laughs> that is a red flag. Yeah, our, our ego does get in the way. We're, we're used to giving answers, fixing other people's problems, and, and sometimes we're just not warm enough to reach out to someone in confidence and say, I need some, I need some support. It could be a mentor, a coach, a therapist. It could be a personal friend, but just to say, you know, I need some help. I'm struggling right now. And as an example, I mean, I've shared, I don't remember how much I've shared about my mom's story, but we had several family interventions um, to try to get her to quit. And it never worked, never worked. And only when she heard a message from her doctor that, look, you're not going to be around in six months, she was in a place where she actually heard it and accepted it and was willing to do something about it in that moment. That was her kind of moment. And until she decided she was ready, it wasn't going to, nothing was going to stick. It wasn't going to work. So you got to be in that place. The question is, if you're out there and whether it's, alcoholism, another type of drug addiction, fear, wanting a change in your career, whatever it is, if you keep saying to yourself, why can't I, or wouldn't it be great if, I try to tell people, look, understand, either you need to get to a place where you're willing to to go into that uncertain path because you don't know what that future is, or you need to drop it, like let go of it, stop, because you're not ready yet. And it doesn't mean you don't have to, you can't come back to that vision in one day, but like you're stressing yourself out more by constantly thinking of what could be and not just being present in the moment and letting life kind of come its way at you. Right. Go go with the flow, as we said. Mm -hmm. And often I find the excuses are the very thing they need to change. When someone says, Heather, I just don't have enough time to be coached by you. Well, maybe that's the problem. You know, maybe that's the problem. If they don't have an hour every couple of weeks to meet with you and, and get some support, then maybe that's the problem they have, that they're in a place where they don't even have time to do something so important to them, you know? it's it, And they, they got to reprioritize. Like, what are your actual priorities here? Make the time for the things that are important. That's up to you. Nobody else going to do that for you. You have to do it for yourself. And right. I really do question, if you think you have no time, like, you coach, Right. It's once or twice a month we meet for like 45 to 55 minutes. If you do not have time for that to work on your own personal and professional development and creating the career, the business, whatever it is you truly want, if you don't have time for that, something's wrong with how you're prioritizing. And it's time to step back and kind of like think about where are my priorities? Like, because your actual priorities are where you're spending your time. And right. is that what you want your priorities to be? And too many of us haven't really examined what we want our priorities to be. We're in a place. We're afraid to let go of it. We feel like we're stuck. And for those who are listening, you're never stuck. There's mm. always an answer. It never has to be that way. If you don't like what it is, it doesn't have to be that way. It can be something else. And you can find someone who can guide you through that and create the world of your dreams, whatever you want it to be, you you can do it. But we, we feel like we're stuck in this place and we can't leave or can't change it or can't change our work habits or our time. All those things are changed and we can make it whatever we want it to be. I would say 99% of the people who say they're stuck and feel stuck, it's because they never talk about it to other people and they're unwilling to get vulnerable, vulnerable enough to get help. 
that's really the answer. And I don't know where that help needs to come from. It depends on what your stuckness is, what it is you're wanting, how you're feeling, but it's time to start opening up and talking to others because number one, you're not the only one and we often think we are. And so we're afraid to admit it to anybody else. And number two, there's loads of people out there who can help you through it. So absolutely, we're we're never the we're never alone. There there's so many. I mean, if it's just the lawyer who's overwhelmed in his office and stressed and overworked, <laughs> everyone's that way. I mean, there's so many, and it, it could mm-hmm. be a spouse you talk to. It could be your classmate. It could be someone in the bar association committee, or it could be a, a coach like yourself. But there are people who will who will help and support and change your life. It can be changed. It doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't. I thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story of change because it is a huge change and it's one that a lot of people aren't, don't seem capable of doing. I think that the one thing I would like people to take from you is anybody can change. Anybody can make their life better. There is hope for you. And if you need help, no matter what it is, reach out to somebody to start getting that help. What would you like to leave the audience with today? Well, I guess the three things that I really like to to live my life by and encourage your folks to is to always live in, in gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so often, um, and I'm sure I, I, I suspect with your cancer recovery, you became much more grateful for certain things in your life, whether it was your husband, your kids, your mom, although you were grateful before, it took on a deeper and richer meaning. And and I know I'm so grateful for things today. And often when we worry about things, we're worried about losing something we have or not getting something we want. And both of those are really very selfish. Mm-hmm. I don't lose something I have or I want, I want something I want. you afraid I won't get it. Very selfish. And when we live in gratitude, that selfishness goes away. We mm-hmm. are grateful for our spouse, our health, the amount of money that we have, it could be greater, but we have what we have. We have a home. You were blessed in so many ways. So I always have people I work with, whether it's coaching or individually, write down three things every day you're grateful for every morning. And every morning you have to write down three different Different. things. (laughs) So at the end of three weeks, you've written down uh, 63 things. Now you're really looking for like, what can I, what new can I be grateful for today? And your whole perspective on life changes. Massively. Yeah. And the other thing is to live in acceptance um, rather than resistance. There are things that happen in life that we don't like. So maybe we have a really nasty partner and we walk in thinking, Mr. Jones is so nasty. And he says, hello. And we're already pissed off because we didn't like his tone of voice. Or why did he say it to me yesterday? Just let that go. If Mr. Jones is a difficult partner, accept it. Then you have a, we have choices we can make about that. We could have to be in a different department. We could leave the firm or we could just make the best of it. But to not resist those things, but accept whatever happens. I've accepted mm-hmm. my addiction. You accepted your cancer. I'm sure it's a struggle. You're probably in anger and denial for a period of time. I, I don't know, but I suspect so. But you grew to accept it and became, you know, a different person um, as a result. And the third is to be mindful and present in today, not Mm. to be stuck in the future, which is full of fear and worry. It's always full of fear and worry. It's seldom full of hope. 
Um, you know, I don't know how old your kids are, but when our 17-year-old takes the keys and goes out on Friday night, we're full of fear and worry. Will he come home? Yep. And we don't have any power over it. It doesn't help us to think that way. And to let go of the past, what what either resentments we have or regrets, let go of those and be present in today. So gratitude, acceptance, and being present are the three things I think are really helpful to everyone. I would absolutely agree with all three of those things. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story with us. Where can people find you? Um, I'm very present on LinkedIn under my name, Gary Miles. My website is GaryMiles.net, and folks can email me at Gary at GaryMiles.net. I, like you, have a podcast called The Free Lawyer. I encourage folks to listen to your podcast and to mine. Our messages are a little bit different, but in many ways, they're the same. And and folks, if, if you're not willing to call Heather yet, listen to her podcast because you'll get some wonderful messages. You'll see what she's really like, and you'll see how she can help and serve you. And I would say listen to both podcasts because I think it would help you out a lot too, <laughs> yours as well. Well, thank you so very much. And everybody, I will put links in the show notes to all of those places so that you can hook up with Gary and his podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Heather. I really, really appreciate it. Are you tired of barely squeezing life in thinking, shouldn't there be more to life than this? Do you want to get to the next level, but without losing yourself in the process? Are you ready to start thinking and doing differently so that you can stop doing the same things over and over and over, hoping for a different result? If any of this speaks to you and you're ready to do something about it starting now, book a call with me to find out how I can help. Go to lifeandlawpodcast.com forward slash free call.